Hello and welcome to the last Heads Together on Crime Time FM of 2021, where we play you some of the highlights of the year, an incredible year in which we've interviewed more than 100 writers and people in the film and book industry, from Ace Atkins to Stu Turton, H.B. Lyle to S.J. Watson, Lee Durkee to Abigail Dean, John Vircher to David Hesker Wandley Wyden, Linwood Barclay to C.J. Tudor, Alan Johnson to Mark Billingham discovering much about the writing and the people along the way. Laura Lippman, Henry Porter, Peter May, Tom Bradbury, M.W. Craven, Joseph Knox, Kathy Unsworth, Simona Bushels, Henry Porter, and a lot of debut authors too. Tim Glister, Simon Meir, Jane Jesmond, and Sarah Saltoon come to mind. And then there's everyone in the clips we're about to play. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. I edit and present Crime Time FM. But before they join us, I want to say a little word about my colleagues, Victoria and Barry, both of whom are extremely busy people and I'm very grateful that they devote as much time to this as they do, making Crime Time FM a much better, more relevant, a much more wide-ranging podcast. And we're all extremely grateful to you, the listeners. So, Victoria Selman is a best-selling author of the Zeba McKenzie serial killer series. And when I invited her on board as a presenter, she knew exactly what she wanted to do. Panel chats in a relaxed atmosphere, and that became on the sofa. As I listen, I always find myself becoming engrossed with her chats. And a bit of news now. In July, Victoria will be releasing her new book, Truly Darkly Deeply, which is a standalone and is published by Quercus. It's going to be one of the book events of the year, so I urge you to look out for that. And what to say about Barry Forshaw? He's a legend in the crime fiction world. He's editor of Crime Time, he's the crime fiction critic for the Financial Times, and he's author of Crime Fiction, A Reader's Guide, a book I always keep to hand. And that's only scratching the surface. Not only is Barry a lover of books and music, he's also one of our foremost experts on cinema, and he contributes Barry's Blu-rays, which links crime and film and opens up a whole new avenue of interviewees. Again, Crime Time FM is much richer for his insightful, entertaining and informative contribution. It's been an absolute pleasure working with them and I'm really looking forward to 2022 and an awful lot more of this. But that's enough now, so let's cut to the main event. Hello to everyone. Hello, Victoria. Hello, Barry. Hello Hello. again, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, again, for those of you who don't know, we had a rehearsal yesterday. What we were supposed to be doing was recording, but one of us, who will remain nameless unless the other two... (laughs) Dob me in. I uh, <laughs> forgot to record the episode. So, <laughs> well, that could have been so easily beat any one of us. I'm actually just grateful it was you and not me, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Idiot. Anyway. No, it's so because we got carried away in our pre record chat. So it's a good sign, isn't it? Not a bad one. <laughs> no, no chatting in future. No being friendly no. or anything. Just get no, on. No, absolutely okay. not. Business only. <laughs> okay. Well, we're here, of course, because we're going to talk about our episodes and, and a little bit of the uh, highlights of the shows. Uh, my first one is Chris Offert. And the thing I think this demonstrates is that you just never know where the laughs are going to come from. Because when you don't know somebody and you interview them, you just don't know what kind of interview it's going to be. And this was just mm. so much fun. And so far, I like you. So let's go. <laughs> I said the right thing so far. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. The first question. <laughs> Okay. And so I asked Chris about Oxford, Mississippi, his hometown, what it was like there. Well, there's, there's a lot of writers here. And I would say that per capita, there's more writers here than probably any other 
uh, town or city in the, in the United States. And it's just, I don't, I'm not even sure why. Uh, Oxford is a very progressive town, which is unusual in the South. Mm. And it's a cool place. And uh, like you mentioned, Ace and Lee, they're, you know, they're buddies of mine. I saw, I ran into Ace yesterday right. outside of the Square Bookstore, in fact. So, you know, uh, there's a, quite a few writers here. And they have regular literary events and sort of it's, it's a thing for the town, yeah? Oh, yeah, they're packed. And the, the, the bookstore has been there 30 years. It's like the heart of the, of the town in a way. And then there's a bar right next door, of course, which is handy. Always handy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And later on, I asked for recommendations. I guess I'd, I guess I'd have to recommend The House Uptown by, my, by Melissa Ginsburg, uh, my wife. I so, will put that on the notes. If I don't do that, she'll shoot me. She's from <laughs> Texas, man. She's tough. Okay, no, I, hey, I'm on your side here. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to keep writing these books, so I'm not having her shoot you, okay? <laughs> okay. You know how it is, America. We're all barbarians over here. We're all barbarians. No, Victoria, you interviewed, well, you interviewed Ali Land and Will Carver, but you have something yes. to tell us about Will Carver. <laughs> Will Carver had something to tell us about Will Carver. <laughs> this was also a really fun episode, Paul, with so many laughs. It was like just being down the pub with a bunch of friends. And um, yeah, great fun, lots of banter. And a slight reveal that Will Carver may, she says quickly, in case there's a lawsuit to follow this episode, uh, be a psychopath. So listen to the episode, guys, and see what you think. <laughs> well, he did say that being a psychopath has some benefits as well. He did. He also said he wasn't a violent one. So put that in the, <laughs> in the show notes quickly, too. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the office, the classic office psychopaths. Yeah. Yeah. You've kind of got the bankers, the financiers, the yeah. surgeons who are signing their initials on people's, you know, organs and various yeah. other Really? Like that. Is that yeah. what they do? Yeah, that awful story. Oh my God. This guy who'd like, he'd done like, you know, a, um, a kind of really specialized surgeon who, who's like one of three people that can do this particular procedure. And he, he did it on, on a particular patient. And then oh. someone else opened up the person and um put uv light on for, for another procedure and saw the initials on, oh on the and Brilliant. obviously then they, <laughs> yes oh psychopathy gosh. is everywhere but i think i think yeah. it's like seven men to one women so there's, there's always this well will carver apparently is one of them when i am um, when i invited him on the show <laughs> He said to me, he said, yeah, I'd love to, because actually I think I'm, I'm a psychopath. Oh, God. Sorry, I just can. like, you know, throw for our personal yeah, emails. Thanks, here. the bus has come over. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can have um, elements of psychopathy, can't you, but not yeah. be a violent psychopath. You know, I've, he says I killed, very quickly, I haven't killed that many eyes, people. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Three or four people I've killed. Just no, um, I just think, yeah, you know, there are there are elements that, you know, I think they can be positive, like like you say, these yeah. these kind of high functioning yeah. uh, people who work well under pressure often have that that psychopathic element to them. Barry, you interviewed Jonathan Rigby and discussed um, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee and the art of commentary. Yes, we both um, earned a shilling or two by doing Blu-ray commentaries and writing booklet essays, right. which is really money for old rope. Because for both of us to talk about films we love for one hour, 45 minutes, and get paid for it is very nice. So we talked about um, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. He's written um, books about them. And we talked about one of our favourite Sherlock Holmes films, which is Hound of the Baskervilles, which has a wonderful Holmes and Peter Cushing. 
And a rather unthreatening hound. Indeed. One of the things that you did mention in this was Cash on Demand. Tell us about that film. That's interesting. One of the great things about what, what, what Paul Berg, Victoria Selman and me do is to alert people to things that they might not know about. Now, we yes. picked Sean Cosby as one of our books of the year, and people know about that. There was, I don't think there's a sense of discovery anymore, but Cash on yeah. Demand, most people have never heard of it. It's got Peter Cushing and Andre Morel in a wonderfully taught, beautifully written little, essentially a heist thriller, mm. and people don't know about it. So it's nice to be able to say, seek this one out. Absolutely. So... Do you, ah, yes. Do you particularly relish working on? I know that Cushing is a favorite of yours and Lee. Do you relish working on their films rather than some which are assignments, shall we say? Well, actually, uh, David Miller and I did the audio commentary on Cash. I thought you did, yes. Yeah, and uh, yes, we enjoyed that one very much because that's a superb little mm. film. I mean, Andre Morel as much as for Cushing. Oh, well, and there's another actor I adore. And um, uh, yeah, Cash on Demand. I think Brian McFarlane called it the best B film ever made in the UK. And uh, he might not be far wrong. Um, yes, I enjoy talking about uh, Cushing films and Lee films, but I don't think I see any of the films um, that I'm handed as an assignment only. Because, you know, as we've discussed, even not, you know, sort of objectively not very good films are always full of uh, full of interest and very often you can be handed a film i mentioned the mind of mr Soames. now there's a film i think i saw on television decades ago and uh, was really quite unfamiliar with actually prior to doing the uh, commentary and you see that was a fascinating sort of voyage of discovery if you yes. like and I, I i hope that the people listening to the commentary felt the same thing um, I interviewed Steve Kavanagh, and uh, this little clip demonstrates why he thinks Eddie Flynn, the con man, is actually the most honest man in the courtroom, and why he likes to punch cops. <laughs> Eddie was kind of created in some ways to balance the system, because it is so biased, you know, in favor of the prosecution. Yeah, yeah. And uh, against, especially young um, per uh, defendants mm. uh, and, and minorities in America. You need the only way to balance that is to put uh, a con artist in there who will yeah. use all of those uh, weapons against the system, and that will make it fair. But and it also you know, creates the paradox that the most honest man in this whole judicial process is a con artist. Mm. Uh, so that that's an interesting dynamic for me. And there's lots to play on in that in this book and other books. But Eddie was created to write a lot of the injustices that you know I, I saw. And he's my vehicle for that. There's no put it this way, it's no accident that Eddie Flynn punches a lot of policemen in this series. <laughs> Victoria, Mark Edwards, Louise Candlish, and Lisa Jewell. Lisa Jewell. Lisa Jewell. Yeah, this is my season finale, Paul. So a great way to end um, our first season of it On really the Sofa. It really was, yes. It really was. Really, really enjoyed it. It was um, those three guys talking about building suspense. And at the end, they plotted a novel live on the show. So that was great. But in this particular clip, uh, Mark Edwards is talking about living vicariously through his characters and in brackets, paying, <laughs> paying some revenge on some neighbours that rather annoyed him. <laughs> so he put them in a book. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And in the very first scene, she says, I know he's dead because I killed him. And so, you know, the question is, 
how if she's killed him, what's he doing still alive on a roof terrace? Yes. Yes. Also, how did this this woman that we hopefully we can all relate to because she's you know seems very very yeah. um, civilized. What's she doing going around killing people? Yes, got, right in the first scene, you've got you know some big questions, and I think that's probably yeah. Yeah. all of our novels. And then again, it's character, isn't it? I mean, as you're saying, it's somebody we can identify with, and that in itself is is the suspenseful part. Which yeah. is yeah. I think that's something that Louise and I both do, mm. and Lisa to an extent, yeah. is you take kind of good, nice people, and then you see how far you can put how how far yeah. do they need to be pushed before they they crack. Yes. And, and I'm ready to create to commit. See evil grin on your face as you say it, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> what can I do to my characters? Wow. Yeah, and that's part of the that's part of the joy of writing these kind of books is that yeah. you, you create this really nice person and then you torture them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they get to kind of um enact those kind of primitive knee-jerk emotions that we have in different yeah. situations. Whereas normally and, you would just yeah. be like, Well, obviously I'm not gonna go and get revenge yeah. by killing yeah. that person but yes. in a novel you can take it that step further yeah. when you start you you know your rational sort of sense starts to malfunction yes. I mean, I'm sure we've all had those fantasies on commute packed commuter trains yeah. and in long <laughs> supermarket checkout queues <laughs> yeah, when someone, criti- when someone comes me. back and criticizes our panels yes we've got, <laughs> got those primitive desires for revenge yeah <laughs> Um, but that's how I started out with the magpies it was because I'd had these terrible neighbors who'd made my life a misery and the the starting point for that book was what would I have done if it got much much worse and had actually got dangerous how far would I have had to be pushed before I kind of tried to strike back or do something and that's that was the whole premise of the book and I just took it from there your neighbors need to watch out don't they Mark (laughs) (laughs) I also interviewed Imran Mahmood and I I think some people will have seen his show um you don't know me on the television recently and um Imran is a, a lawyer and one of the interesting things is we started discussing truth which gets us into the area of memory and what's a construct and he explains a little bit like that. And it's quite troubling, actually, to talk to a lawyer who says there is no such thing as truth. Huh. He's a, he's a fellow uh, like myself who's brought up near the River uh, Mersey. So um, he, I think, also left at a similar time to me. I, I haven't said this He's before. another one who's lost the accent as well, isn't he? He has indeed. There's no accent. <laughs> I think huh. I'm going to be the first person to say this. And I don't know if I am the first, but I don't think the TV adaptation did anything like justice to his book Mm. his book is more complex and challenging and interesting because it's told in this first person narrative yes it became more conventional in the adaptation Mm. um imran may cross me off his christmas card list for saying that but i am saying his book was better than the tv adaptation i think it's a compliment though isn't it actually to say that it's almost like it was it was too nuanced to be able to completely capture it on the screen yeah i I think he was clear with that because it's a sort of a a monologue if you like for most of the book that it wasn't Mm. possible to put that on the screen so they knew they had Mm. some real challenges with that in the first Mm. place in a very abstract way because the fact that they've decided guilty or not guilty or truth or, or lie doesn't in fact make the truth true no it's just a construct. You might say and that's just a feature of, that's a microcosm of the feature of the way ordinary truths 
work because it's, I think it's a very difficult subject. Um, you're, we, t- we talk these days about um, personal truths. You, you hear people talking about my truth, this is my truth. Yes, yeah. And, and initially I was very suspicious about that. Mm. Um, but then it began to occur to me that people's truths are formed from what they um, remember. Uh, and memory is a very strange thing. Um, and I just, just to give you an example, I might say to my wife, if she asks me, um, that I did switch the gas off. Mm. And I might have a very clear memory of that. And she might, uh, having seen the gas on, have a very clear memory that, <laughs> that it wasn't on. Now, unless I'm challenged about my memory and presented with um, facts which um, dispute it, I begin to continue to form more and more concrete um, Mm. ideas about what I have experienced. And they become more and more embedded as time goes on. And when they're not challenged, they ultimately become a truth. Mm -hmm. That truth begins to inform how we develop. So we turn into the kind of person that we turn into because of our experiences. And if our experiences aren't aren't, uh, as we've remembered them, if, if they're different, then we've, we've slightly constructed our own reality. And Joanne Harris tells us a little bit about her experience as a young teacher and how that feeds into her fiction these days, an experience which is unfortunately about crusty old men and misogyny. And I remember when I arrived at at Leeds Grammar School, I was something like 25, something like Mm -hmm. that. And I was one of, I think, five or six women in the school. That was it. People kept mistaking me for the school secretary. I I was mistaken for a boy several times because I had this blue trouser suit, which looked like the school uniform that the sixth formers wore. And I had short hair and and I, I just didn't understand why people kept shouting at me for being in certain parts of the school, but it was because they thought I was a pupil. Um, and I had, I had my first experience with, with, uh, with the, the, the higher echelons was when in my, my first or second week, the third master beckoned me into his office and said, Mrs. Harris, I noticed that you are wearing trousers. And I said, well, so are you, third master. And he said, but Mrs. Harris, the ladies at Leeds Grammar School wear a a skirt or a frock. So I thought, damn you, I'm not, you know, this is not, we are not in the 40s here, mate. And so the next day I turned up in a red plastic miniskirt (laughs) and thigh boots and walked into his office very early and and said, you know, as you can see, I'm now wearing a skirt um, according to LGS regulations. But if you felt that you could possibly um, modernise those regulations. I've also brought the the pantsuit, and he looked at me and said, "Wear the pants." And we never talked about it again. And it right. was, but it was like that. It was full of these 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 calcified old men who had been there for decades, and and you know you you got you got short shrift if you did anything that was remotely out of the ordinary, like sitting in somebody else's chair in the staff room during headmaster's briefing or this kind of thing. Victoria, publicity, lockdown, reading. Ah, yes, lockdown reading. So you're talking about my industry insiders panel, I presume. Industry insiders. Okay, yeah. I'm distinguishing that you've got two insiders. So this is the publicity one, the next one's the marketing one. 
Right. So the publishers. Right. Exactly. Please. This is a quiz, by the way, listeners. It's not just the highlights. It's can you spot <laughs> the highlights to come? Um, so, yes, here was uh, Miranda Dewis uh, from Viper, Catherine Armstrong from Simon & Schuster and my agent, David Headley, talking about publishing trends and how lockdown has affected uh, reading habits. And I was really interested to hear him say, you know, this was uh, Miranda, actually, who said, um, that one of the great things about great inverted commas things about lockdown is because we all had so much time, it gave us time to read books we haven't we've always wanted to read, but mm. maybe haven't had a chance to. Um, so that was that was interesting and, and certainly something I could relate to. I think we really noticed, especially the first half of 2020, was this massive surge in the backlist. Yeah. That was, you know, books that were, you know, classics or sort of staples, um, really, really supported the front list it's like people kind of they what they wanted to read the familiar books or the books they've always meant to read like a massive you know 900 page book on economic theory about I've always meant to buy and read that now I can <laughs> um but also yes as Catherine says uh, ebook and audio really shot up for us in kind of April and May um but then actually print did sort of by the summer it came it came storming back um, even before bookshops were really open. Um, so I think maybe this is something that obviously Catherine works for a very large publisher. I work for a medium independent publisher. For those publishers who were well set up to be reasonably mobile and had already strong sales um, avenues, we've weathered it pretty well and actually learned some valuable lessons. I'm sure for smaller publishers, this has been really hard. You couldn't have had three people with their pulse, their finger more on the pulse of publishing than those. No, you really yeah. couldn't. It was an excellent panel. And it was a very popular episode. Yes, very much so. Barry, your next interview is uh, the one you did with Michael McKenzie, and you discussed Jallo and Suspiria in this particular clip. Yes, uh, Michael McKenzie is a senior producer at Arrow Films. and We work together on a lot of films. I've done booklets for him and commentaries. And uh, I've written a book on Italian cinema in which I talk about the jelly, which I think most people know what they are now. I'm not sure. Victoria, do you know what a jello is? I'm just going to nod and say, uh-huh, but no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you did, that was a very good nod, though. You did honestly look thank like you, you knew what you. it was talking about. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I so they, are, they are glossy Italian murder thrillers, which initially often appear to be about murders uh, which are done by sex criminals. In fact, that's always a bluff. They are always, and this is a big spoiler for every Jello you'll ever see. They're always about money. They're always about some plot to to screw. Me, and and the, the the sexual aspect is is a blind. So we talked about uh, those films, the Jelly, and also the Plitzioteschi, which are um, films about with a tough, usually corrupt Italian cop at the centre, more, more political than the British and American versions. They are, yes. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. They are much more political. The other thing is there's no good guys and bad guys. There's just a whole bunch of bad guys, which is great. No, exactly. When you watch Dirty Harry, which is kind of the progenitor of all these Italian mm -hmm. cop movies, at least, you know, you're supposed to be just about on Harry's side. He's, <laughs> he's, he's kind of the hero. He may be neo-fascist, but he's kind of the hero. <laughs> <laughs> those those divisions go with the Italian films, and uh, it really it's only because somebody as good looking as Luke Miranda is playing mm. one of the cops. You know, he's the guy you're supposed to identify with. Yes. <laughs> Probably in an ideal world, I would produce nothing but jelly, but unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. And I have Tell to. Me, wear you, up did you say that you'd seen Suspiria on on a small screen first? 
Yeah. Um, it was interesting because someone being a little older than you, I was in the cinema with people like Alan Jones and Kim Newman listening to that in blasting five channel sound. And it was an even more transforming experience than the one you described. Well, I mean, I, I have subsequently seen Suspiria on the big screen, that um, that um, very much loved Technicolor print that always does the rounds whenever there's a, a festival screening. So I, I, I have had the, the pleasure now of actually seeing it as it was intended to be seen. But um, yes, I, I mean, I think my um, my initial experience with Suspiria was the, the, what... Um, what added to the to the the whole atmosphere of it was, you know, watching it in the middle of the night. Um, it was part of Ch- Channel 4's, Channel 4 were doing a kind of a horror festival and they showed various films like um, Wes Craven's New Nightmare and um, Audition, um, Battle Royale, things like that. But Suspiria just kind of blindsided me and I had no idea what to expect and no idea what I was watching. But from those kind of, those familiar um, notes of the the Goblin soundtrack, I was instantly mesmerised. And, and now you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, Blood and Black Lace, which of course is a giallo because it's Sedone per l'assassino, and as the Italian title says, it's six women for the killer, and there is no supernatural element. Whereas Suspiria has got a supernatural element, so it's not really a giallo, is it? No, no. I am. Um, I mean, this this is a topic that um, you know um, generates a lot of sort of heated um, heated emotions. <laughs> um, I I don't consider it a jello personally. I mean, I think there are elements of it, um, you know, that, that that kind of pay lip service to the genre. There are, there's there's one scene at the beginning where um, a group of detectives arrive to investigate the double murder and then are never heard from. You know. <laughs> again um there's the there's the kind of the familiar jello motif of the the sort of the half remembered clue or the the clue that's witnessed but not properly understood until you know until until the climax but um no by and large you know Suspiria is very much in the kind of in the you know the the supernatural horror tradition but I think I think for me it was a it was a kind of it was a gateway drug essentially because it was Having watched Suspiria, I wanted to seek out more films. And now, uh, now you mainline Jelly on a weekly basis, I imagine. Well, it- um, I, one of my strangest interview, in a way, probably is with James Wolfe, um, who was, he worked for the government, in inverted commas. And uh, he had just left by the time we did the interview, but the interview had to be done incognito. So I still have no idea who James Wolfe is. But I next year, if we want a Father audio. Christmas. Sorry? Sorry, I've completely interrupted you. But yeah, no, well, just, just did... audio. Yeah, we had to do yeah. just audio. And he was somewhere in the world, but that wasn't specified either. And it took a bit of setting up. Anyway, yeah. this is him explaining why he why he's incognito. Well, as you say, I, I worked for the, for the civil service in the UK for about 15 years. And I uh, left recently, in fact. Um, but I think that, that doing that sort of job or, or, or working in government does entail... Um, all sorts of responsibilities about discretion mm-hmm. um, and just respecting the, the job and the things I did when I was um, working for the government. So I, I think it was felt that um, I should be as discreet as possible um, in the, the publicity process for the book. I do um, recognise that there is a contradiction there um, and that I'm here talking about a book and um, trying to make it sound as interesting as possible and um, you know, hoping that people will read it, but at the same time being rather coy when this question comes up. Um, so I, I do recognise that contradiction exists, and it's it's unfortunate, but there's not much I can do about it. 
it's perfectly fine. I think people will understand. And as you can imagine, there's an awful lot of debate about whether James is actually a spy. But I have nothing further to say on the subject. Um, Victoria, okay, this time, the Industry Insiders, the marketing <laughs> panel. Yes. So again, this was a great panel. This was Hannah Robinson, who is the Quercus Publicity Director, uh, Chris McDonald from Blood Brothers Podcast, and Simon Buick, who's a bit of a marketing guru and runs Baytales, for, for those who might recognize him from that, and Virtual mm-hmm. Market Bar as well. So three really sort of um, marketing um, savvy people talking about publicity and what we can do. But also in this particular clip, um, Hannah's talking about the challenges with online marketing events. So sitting back in lockdown, I was really, (laughs) until I really wasn't, I was really enjoying some of the Zoom events. But of course, from a book selling point of view, there were real challenges um, with with selling books whilst actually not not being physically present. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Sorry, Barry. I was just going to say that yeah, the, the book trade didn't suffer under COVID mm. as much as we thought it would. No. Counter, counterintuitively, book yes. sales were yes, true. healthy. Yeah. Yes. It'd be interesting to see how much of the hybrid festival thing survives. Yes. And I think it's interesting. I don't know what you guys think, but from me personally, from a writer's perspective, in terms of traveling to different events, it's a hell of a lot easier just switching on my laptop in my writing room and, and, and you know, being part of an event than of having to traipse down here and there and everywhere. So although obviously less fun, not, not seeing people. No, there but the, the other consequence of the lockdown is, of course, I can interview people in Canada and I can interview yes. people in New Zealand. And unless yes. they were coming to festivals in the UK, that simply wouldn't have been possible in the past. So, Well, this is right. So next season on the sofa, I've got Jeffrey Deaver actually kicking off season two, which I'm very excited to be airing. A uh, quick plug there. But he's, of course, in the States, in Florida. So I would yes. be delighted as it happens to have jumped on a plane and headed off to sunny Florida. But, um, I, but you know, I can tell you now for a certainty, the, the budget <laughs> won't stretch to that next year either. Oh, rat. Not, All right. not even if the, the COVID thing vanishes, I trust me. Can I, can I enter a caveat to someone who chose a lot of panels that's one thing i really have missed i've chaired panels yeah. on zoom right. and yeah. you lose the interaction with the yeah. audience you yeah. lose the interaction between the authors yeah. it simply doesn't work you yeah, can make them work in a different way but i am yeah. longing for the day when i can get a, an audience in front of me and and the two authors again yeah, yeah it's absolutely. a certain chemistry isn't it that you just can't recreate on screen crime crime and thriller genre you know panel events is such a tried and tested yeah format and so we always do that whether it's online or in in person uh, and that will continue i think um but but the bit that we found i think the whole industry found difficult to to pair together with the online events and Mm. the marketing side of book marketing is how to sell books at virtual Mm, events that's a very good point yes i'm not sure we ever have completely cracked that Mm -hmm. if you've got a very big name that everybody wants to pay money to watch online you can do a book and ticket. Okay. Sort of ticket. Yes. Um, but if it's maybe a slightly less well-known author or the, the subject of the panel that's more interesting, but you don't necessarily want to buy every every member's book on, you know, that's a, yes. an expensive event to watch from your home. Yes. So that, that's the bit that we never quite put together. And a physical event where you will meet the author, stand in front of them, they'll sign their book for you. Yes. You, you can't replicate that online. That's very interesting. I hadn't even thought of it like that, because I guess in my head, it's all about the awareness building, which is, I guess, what we're all focusing on, isn't it? But of course, at the end of the day, book marketing is about book selling, isn't it? Mm. And that's, I guess, why so often you do them in a bookshop or, yeah. you know, festivals, you have the bookshop on site, don't you? So it's how how to crack that up. 
Yeah. Uh, the next two excerpts I put together, they're, they're, first of all, it's Vasim Khan talking about being a judge of a prize, book prize. And also, it was, I interviewed him the day that he won the CWA dagger, his, the historical dagger. And um, it's just interesting to hear him chat about that. And the second piece relates to us specifically, and this is our award, the Crime Time FM uh, Crime Novel of the Year Prize, which went to S.A. Cosby for Razorblade Tears. And it's the way that um, Craig Sisterson breaks the news to him. It's just really interesting to hear that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's foolish to speculate. Well, whenever you brought you, it up, you, so you, let's moment. chat about that. Um, the, are you nervous? Because actually, I mean, those awards are tonight. They are tonight. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, not nervous. No, no. The reason I'm not nervous is because I've been up for numerous awards in the past. I've won a I'm couple. Won a couple. Uh, yeah, I've won a couple and also not won a few. So I've been through the, the through the mill. I haven't been up for a dagger before, so I suppose in that sense it's special. Uh, but then when I look at when I yeah, it is. But when I when I understand, I've been a judge on something called the Betty Trask Award in the past. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, which is a very uh, it's a lucrative award for literary authors, and I know how subjective and difficult the decision is for judges. So I will absolutely. Uh, not begrudge the judges for giving any of the the other wonderful books uh, on the shortlist uh, the award and and for uh, for not giving it to me it's it's just not something that I would uh, I would uh, worry about if I didn't receive it because I don't think there's any way to when you get to the, the, the to the to the end knockings it's very difficult to judge between really good books yeah no it is and I mean it is always a subjective matter isn't it um what would it be like to win though would you what would that feel like I mean, because as you say, I mean, awards really don't come much better than this, do they? Much bigger, much more important. Well, given we talked about this off air, I spent 23 years writing all sorts of books, yes. uh, receiving some 200 rejections over, over, the, over that period from pretty much every agent in the, in the country until I was finally published. Uh, so you could say that, you know, 30 years on from the time I submitted my first novel, age 17. Mm-hmm. To get something like a dagger, which is, uh, you know, a, a real stamp of a of not approval, but just a stamp of, hey, Vaz, you wrote something really good, and we appreciate yeah. that you did it. It would be quite fantastic, I think. Uh, but let's not get our let's not uh, get our hopes up too much. <laughs> no. <laughs> but of course, Vasim Khan did win the CWA Historical Dagger for his brilliant novel Midnight at Malabar House. And now here's Craig Sisterson. As I said at the start of this, Razorblade Tears is one of our finalists for the Crime Time FM Crime Novel of the Year. This is an award that has been given out as kind of a Critics' Choice Award. Around a dozen critics from newspaper reviewers from The Telegraph, The Guardian, The Financial Times, newspapers and magazines from other countries around the world, all their favourite books of the year. We had a wonderful group of finalists and um, because we're crime lovers, and we always like a little twist at the end of stories, we have a little twist for you here today. Because when I told you at the start that Razorblade Tears was a finalist for this award, I was telling the truth, but I was not telling the whole truth. Because I'm very pleased to tell you, Mr. Cosby, that Razorblade Tears is the crime novel of the year for Crime Time. If oh, my God. Congratulations, my friend. <laughs> So rather cruelly, I cut off Sean Cosby's amazing reaction to winning the prize. Um, you'll have to listen to the episode to get that. Victoria, Dom Nolan and Chris Whitaker on likability. 
Yeah, this is my big bugbear question, Paul. So the question of uh, rereaders often say, oh, I don't like such and such a character, therefore I don't like the book. But actually, do they mean like in the way we think they mean like? And I think possibly, no, they don't. I think when when we're talking about, um, or rather when they're talking about liking a character, what they actually mean is whether or not they empathise with them mm. um, and whether that character is compelling. And that's very different to do I want to be friends with this person? And I think it's very important to make that distinction. There's currently an internet feud raging over this idea that you have to make value judgments on your characters as an author. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that's kind of part of what's happening everywhere, isn't it, at the moment, mm-hmm. that um, you have to be squeaky clean. So you have to make it clean that you, clear that you don't really identify with a psychopath. Although Patricia mm-hmm. Highsmith got away with it for quite a few years, didn't she? Indeed. Quite right. And I actually, I actually don't like that. I think, you know, if you're inhabiting a character, you properly inhabit them. You can't step back and say, oh, by the way. <laughs> no, what you're <laughs> effectively doing is censoring a book. Yes. You're making it a moral crusade of some kind that it, it doesn't need to be. As if answering questions instead of um, asking them, which is what uh, fiction authors often do. It's just a yes. silly assumption. We had this with Nabokov. So again, when we were recording yesterday, and I now won't remember exactly what I say, it won't be so, um, so well put, but he was actually really accused after writing Lolita. People assumed, well, he must be a, a pedophile as well. And he was like, well, no, of course not. Just because I wasn't obviously passing moral judgment does not mean for one second I was agreeing with him. And in fact, yes. seeing it through his eyes is more damning. You see, it, he comes across worse. The reader has to has to do the work. Yes, um, And, and it's, it's like going back to as far as Tolstoy, Tolstoy mm. put himself in the mind, as did Flaubert, of a, a middle-class woman who's having an affair. And mm. they, Madame Bovary, Anna Karenina are great creations of the imagination, mm-hmm. even though in that case they're written by men rather than women. It's kind of the same argument, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Have, don't you think, Victoria, that you have to, as an author, inhabit a whole variety of roles, all, all the people in your, no- in your novel? You can't just be with the one admirable character. Absolutely, or even the character that's most like me. I mean, we're not writing autobiographies, are we? We're writing fiction. And that means, yeah, properly putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, whoever those shoes might belong to. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, let's talk about likability, actually. Let's explore that in a bit more depth, because you're right, Donna, it does come up all the time, doesn't it, in reviews? It's, you know, people will literally say about a book, I didn't like this book because I didn't like the character. Mm. Um, and as writers will say, it's not about like, it's about what's, I think it's about what's compelling. Chris, what, what do you reckon, readers? Do you think they're meaning like in the way that we're interpreting it, that like as in they want to be their friends, or, or do they mean something else by it, do you reckon? I think that they need to empathise with the character. They don't necessarily need to like them. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm writing people. I'm not writing characters in a crime novel. You know, I don't need them to fit into this box that that the genre, you know, decides or whatever. And... Um, I get so many messages actually about Duchess, about um, people that don't like her, but mm. a happy ending for her. And that's fine. You know, that means that that they've connected in some way mm. and um, they have a problem with their language that she uses and things like that, which I get. You know, some people don't like swearing. And but, it's an American comment predominantly, or do you? <laughs> um, it's a mix, really. So I'll do a book. Well, I've been doing a lot of book clubs lately in the US, and um, you normally get one person that has a problem with the language. Okay. Um, but it's, I just never consider it, you know, going into it. I never, it's the last thing on my mind. Are people going to like this character? You know, it just, 
it just doesn't register it just i'm telling a story you know we begin at the end is a snapshot of like a year in the life of duchess and walk just two mm. people you mm. don't need to like them necessarily you do need to care though i think and barry um your interview with kim newman and the section we've got is you discussing may gray the rupert davis version actually and um tell us a little bit about your book as well well i wondered if it was necessary to write another book yet another book on Simonon because right. there there's a whole library of them and then I, it occurred to me that there hadn't been one written from a 20th, 21st century perspective and a lot of the writers I've met around the world uh, would point to their complete libraries of of the Maigret books. Camilleri had a complete set so Maigret is still extremely influential both as, as a writer and there are so many iterations on screen from Jean Gabin to, to Rupert Davis as you mentioned Paul uh, the Rowan Atkinson, which I didn't like personally, mm. Michael Gambon, one of the best. So he's still a character who has a lot to say. And I thought there were interesting things still to to say about Simonon and Maigret. Yeah, that short story collection that came out recently, the five and three of them were new stories. I thought that was a fascinating little collection. I love the two of him also, in retirement. Yes, and also to tie into what we were talking about a little earlier, he's not an not always an admirable figure. Mm. And any biography of him has to talk about the the aspects which are now problematical, that doesn't stop him being a great writer, does it? Absolutely. I think that's no. absolutely right. You can differentiate the person from the craft, can't you? Yes. Well, you have yes. to, otherwise we'd be leaving three quarters of world literature behind, wouldn't we? Yes. yes. You'd I have to because right. different attitudes of times, let alone those who specifically were racist or worse on. Yes. So, you know. It, There's yes. a line, Paul, in Shakespeare, use each man according to his deserts. And who would escape whipping? Indeed. So none of us are perfect, are we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a perfect that a... way to put it. Perfect, yes, exactly. Yeah. You drew my attention, Kim, and I'm grateful, uh, and I've been in touch with Network recently, to work uh, in connection with their new Maygray set. Uh, so I'm doing a variety of things for that uh, and introducing an episode. Um, you, uh, being a very young man, of course, probably do not remember Rupert Davis's Maygray series. No, I, I realised I I saw one or maybe two episodes, but that would have been long after the show was off the air. I think in the 1970s, the BBC did one of those um, yeah, filling a slot shows where they repeated six episodes of detective series, you know, of the yes. random series they'd made of this. And I think I, and I know I watched the Maygray there, um, but the, cultural legacy of it was huge i mean we still think of french music is the maigret theme isn't it is that yes. uh, and um, i know that simonon said that rupert davis was his favorite maigret thing is i suspect simonon told everybody who played <laughs> maigret that he was their favorite but um but yes, no, it's, it's it's a set i'm looking forward to um uh, getting into actually because i say it was it's strange that something could be such a huge mainstream hit and then completely disappear. It's as if Line of Duty went back in a vault for another 55 years before anybody saw it again. Yes. An interesting point you made about the fact that Simonon possibly said to everyone from Jean Gabin onwards that they were his favourite maker, because I know that um, Henning Mankel, whoever he was talking to, would, would give a different favourite Kurt Volander. Yeah. And um, just to finish off, the last two pieces we have, one is Joe Thomas. This is because we had a few guest interviewers do stuff for us along the way. And he introduced uh, David Peace 
And I just thought that the way David Peace talks about the anti-crime novel is fascinating. So that's the piece here. And uh, after that, we'll wind up with Walk and Wawa, which is a little piece, 20 seconds of music, because Jared Brennan, when he came on and was interviewed, wrote his own piece. That you had a note <coughs> printed above your desk uh, that said anti-crime novel. And I just wondered if that's still there. I, it's not actually. The, the office I'm talking to you from now is where I've been since 2011. Right. So it's probably now in one of the folders from the earlier draft because I, uh, it, but there's, you can't, I don't think you can see from here, but all, all this wall to the, to my right here is just covered with, with actually still covered with all the crime scene photos and maps and things to do with the case. And yeah. actually I did when, you know, I, 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 there are things picked, picked up and behind me there, there's all the different old titles of the book and things, but the mm. anti-crime thing, it, it was it was actually tagged above the old computer, and so it, right. it went into that manuscript in, in, in with the manuscript there. But it's but it's something that I think is you know always always uppermost in my mind anyway. That the idea of the anti crime novel and what that what that means to me is like literally against crime. That 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 I'm writing something that doesn't sensationalize, glorify, celebrate, you know, mythologize the crimes, and that actually portrays the crimes for, for, the, for the, the, the horrible things that they are and, the, and, and, and with the lasting repercussions and trying then to examine the reasons why these, these crimes happened, the, why, why the perpetrators became the perpetrators, why the victims became the, the, the victims became the victims. And here's Gerard Brennan's self-performed introduction piece. <laughs> So it really only remains for all of us to say thank you very much for listening. Uh, a Merry Christmas to everybody and all the best wishes for, nine, for 2022. And see you then with a Crime Time FM. <laughs> see you. Oh, God, God, that. <laughs> <laughs> do, you want, do you want to try yeah. that again? You can do a second take of that one. I was one, trying to say, what am I trying to say, Lord? You and um, say it again, Paul. Leave me into that. I can't remember how. A Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to everybody, and all the best for 2022. When we will be launching some rather special shows, are we not, gentlemen? We will indeed. See you, yeah, see you in 2022. Happy Bye for New now. Year. Bye.